let's talk about digital identity, the podcast connecting identity and business. I am your host, Oscar Santolayo. Hello and thanks for joining. Today we will hear about the work of One Word Identity and also we'll hear the voice of another podcast host in the digital identity industry. Cameron D'Ambrosi is a principal at One Word Identity and host of the State of Identity podcast. In his role, Cameron is responsible for supporting One World Identity advisory services platform by offering clients key insights into the companies and technologies shaping digital identity today. Prior to joining One World Identity, Cameron was a manager with Deloitte focused on helping financial services clients complete digital transformations of their AML and KYC programs. A longtime resident of New York City, in his spare time, Cameron can be found in the somewhere in the five boroughs hunting down something delicious or in his apartment tinkering with gadgets. Hello, Cameron. Hey, Oscar. Thanks for inviting me. This is great and I'm uh, very excited to be here. Same. It's very nice talking with you today, Cameron. And please, the first thing I want to know is how, how was your journey to this world of digital identity? That's a great question. So, you know, I've kind of danced around the topic of digital identity for a large part of my career. Even before I was with Deloitte, I actually started my career with the New York Stock Exchange's regulatory arm, uh, NICE Regulation, which is now defunct. It's part of FINRA still, I believe, but that's neither here nor there. But I started off at the New York Stock Exchange in trade surveillance, looking at how the specialists at the time were conducting themselves and if they were comporting with New York Stock Exchange rules, specifically around the time stamping and audit trail of orders, which at that point had basically become automated as well. There was a man in the loop, but it was largely computer systems making those decisions. And in hindsight, that was kind of my first exposure to digital identity because a lot of what my job entailed was, you know, looking at essentially the digital signatures and timing of transactions And those signatures were essentially, in many cases, the digital identity of the entity conducting those trades. Now, it was a bit more simplified because it's the stock exchange, so it's kind of a closed-loop system where you obviously could not be trading on the platform directly unless you were a member of the exchange. So some guide rails there that made it a bit less complex than some of the broader challenges in digital identity. But uh, I think it's interesting to think back and realize that I was kind of in digital identity then. But after that, I moved to a Japanese broker-dealer here in the city, which is kind of where I got my feet wet with anti-money laundering and know your customer. And from there, I moved to Deloitte. And I think that at Deloitte is where I really caught the digital identity bug. And really, that happened when I started really getting under the hood at some of the major financial institutions of both this country here in the States and the globe and saw that, you know, despite, I guess, a consumer reputation for banking being very advanced and very serious, that many of the institutions that you know and love were really quite primitive when it came to the processes in place around how they captured identities, how they verified them, how they stored them, and how consumers were able to interact with their bank and with their money in a digital sense. And that really got me hooked. You know, I really realized that this is kind of the way of the future. 
and that I know it's a cliche, but uh, identity being the original sin of the internet really kind of uh, clicked with me once I entered financial services. And Deloitte is actually where I then hooked up with our founder and CEO, Travis Jaray. And so when he started digital, this firm, OWI, focused around digital identity, I was one of his first calls to join the firm. And I leapt at the opportunity because I had really bought in on Travis's thesis of digital identity as uh, the next big field. So during which years you were in the stock exchange? When was that? So this was uh, 2007 to 2010. I actually joined mm -hmm. right before the financial crisis. Quite an interesting time to be yeah. uh, at the stock exchange. I was there on the floor for the flash crash and uh, a few other kind of big milestone days for financial services history, I guess you would say. So it was uh, quite an interesting time. Well, yes, I can imagine. So you're already more than 10 years in altogether in digital identity. Yes. I'll say yes. Oh, fabulous. Now that you mentioned, you already started talking about uh, that from your job in Deloitte, it's where everything started. Uh, one word identity. Let's, let's talk about that. Uh, tell us what is one word identity. Sure. So we are a market strategy, research and events firm with a laser-like focus on the market of digital identity. We really, as a, an organization, were founded on the thesis first put forward by our founder, Travis Jaray, mm -hmm. that digital identity is the future of the economy and that it is really an area that is lacking collaboration across industries specifically. You know, the creation myth, if you will, in many ways of our company traces back to Google. Travis was working there at the time heading up a team tackling digital identity challenges for Google Payments on the Google Wallet product specifically. And a team of his was tasked with figuring out how to bring the next billion users on board the Google platform with regards to digital identity in developing markets such as India. And once they started digging around the challenges that were in place around identity, they kind of had recognized that one of the major barriers was a complete lack of communication both within organizations like Google and then necessarily outside of organizations like that between organizations. We've come to referring to these breaks in communication as silos, you know, industry silos. So you have financial services in their silo thinking about financial services identity. You have the healthcare folks in their silo thinking about healthcare identity. You have the government folks in their silo thinking about government identity. You have the e-commerce payments folks in their silos thinking about their digital identities. And they really weren't coming together to, you know, share war stories, use a common vernacular, share standards and technologies, and more important, you know, collaborate at a meaningful level on how to break down these silos and really drive the types of digital identity solutions that were going to make a meaningful impact into people's lives. So while Travis was at Google, he recognized the possibility for bringing folks together in a conference focused around identity specifically. Mm -hmm. That is the conference that became the No Identity Conference, which we still hold today. We started off in 2017 in Washington, D.C., and now we have moved that conference to Las Vegas. So shameless plug, April 5th through 8th, 2020 at the MGM Grand, No Identity 2020. If you're listening to this podcast and you care about digital identity, I think you should definitely be there. But 
All of that is to say, we really strongly believed in fomenting this conversation around digital identity and that this was as much of a people challenge as it was a technology challenge, which I think at the time was a bit of a unique perspective. I think folks felt that we could just keep throwing technology Mm -hmm. at the problem that it would solve itself. And our kind of foundational thesis was that we needed more than technology. We needed a real and meaningful industry collaboration between those industry silos to really crack this nut and solve this challenge. And how would would you define the one world identity uh, vision? That's a great question. You know, I don't want to speak for the entire company, but I think overall my vision for digital Mm -hmm. identity is one of, uh, you know, low friction, high security, and most importantly, user control. I think that you know, people in many ways don't trust consumers as much as they should. And I think a lot of the prevailing wisdom around how governments and other folks have treated consumers with regard to digital identity is a bit with kid gloves. I don't know if that expression kind of translates away from American English, but essentially we, we've been kind of, we've been babying users. We've not been trusting them to do what's in their own self-interest. We've not been presenting them with meaningful information, meaningful choices, and meaningful control over their digital identities. And I think that's a mistake. I think that by and large, people understand these issues. They're concerned with these issues. And we have been in many ways poo-pooing their ability to make rational and meaningful choices around their digital identity. And I think we can return that control to those users and it's going to be beneficial for everyone, most specifically the enterprises. I think, you know, you are are witnessing this uh, tidal shift in how enterprises think about digital identity. And we're finally seeing an end to the era of so-called data lakes, where businesses just kind of indiscriminately hoovered up as much data as they could because they felt, well, you know, storage is cheap data is essentially free in many ways. And we're going to just grab as much as we can and hold on to it for as long as we can, regardless of whether we have a good plan for securing it or a good idea of what to do with it. And I think enterprises are now recognizing that that approach creates more risk than it does value for their enterprise. And they're taking the concept of privacy by design a little bit more seriously. And they're taking user-centric identity a little bit more seriously as well. And I think that's in alignment with our our vision here at OWI for what we see as the future of digital identity. Yes, it's correct what you say that the the users now are more, also more aware about the the, the problems that are happening because some, unfortunately, some some companies have been letting letting them down because of leaks, because misuse of... uh, of the personal information. That's why, yeah, I think customers are more demanding that they have more control of their own data identity. I think so. I think there's a number of factors at play. I think you're you're definitely right in calling out data breaches. You know, as we've seen, you know, for the past few years, it's almost expected that there's a new mega scale data breach that occurs either in the US or at a global level. You know, just a few days ago, the entire country of Ecuador mm. had a massive data breach, I believe. We've seen another few enterprises in the US mishandle millions and millions of records. And I, I think that that trend is going to continue. Sadly, you know, there there's just too much information floating around. And these systems are are so complex that even 
with the best of intentions with the way our current digital identity systems are designed. There's just too much opportunity for data to be intercepted, whether that's in transit or at rest. So I think you're going to continue to see this trend continue until more robust action is taken across industries to really secure all this identity data. And I think to your other point, consumers are are getting more savvy. Mm. Um, I think as you're seeing this next generation between, you know, I guess millennials and then the ones behind them known as Gen Z or the Zoomers, I believe is what they're being called colloquially. These are our digital natives. And I think more than anybody else, you know, the Zoomers and the millennials have seen what it's like to suffer the consequences of a data breach firsthand. And they also have seen what it's like to really be exposed on the internet completely. You know, I have cousins, for example, who are kind of straddling that line between the millennial and the, and the Zoomer generation. And they grew up and spent their entire lives from essentially not infancy, but since they were very young kids, having Facebook, having their parents be on Facebook and Instagram, sharing pictures of them since before they could even really consent to having all of their information put online. And I think that experience has really colored how they view data and and cybersecurity. You know, it's, uh, I guess, a bit cliche to, to talk about this trend, but, you know, we don't really know as people who make products and put them out into the world, you think you have a good idea of how consumers are going to use them, but you don't really know. And I think a prime example of that with regard to Instagram and digital identity is the concept that a lot of Gen Z essentially maintains two different Instagram presences. They have their so-called real Instagram and their fake Instagram And they have an Instagram account that's intended to be public facing that has their real name attached to it that's discoverable. And this is the one that's almost whitewashed or sanitized. This is you putting forth the version of yourself that you're comfortable with the public world seeing, with your potential college seeing, because that's, you know, checking your social media as part of the applications process now, with your potential employers seeing, with strangers seeing. And then in many cases, they also have another Instagram account that just is private and just their friends have access to. And that's the one that is, you know, typically what you think of folks using Instagram for, which is more candid things about their life, more personal things. And I think it's really interesting to see that at a fundamental level, when this product Instagram didn't give these kids the granular controls that they wanted for controlling how and where their information was being shared, they essentially, you know, hacked the system and created their own method for uh, identity management that was privacy preserving. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Quite interesting. Uh, I haven't thought of that. Yeah. Could you tell us? more in concrete uh, the the work that one more identity does with with the customers no? what kind of job to do and maybe a couple of examples sure that's a great question we work with uh, companies across sectors so you know as i alluded to before we're big believers in breaking down these silos of identity we work with organizations kind of across these silos who are really looking to either fundamentally rethink how they think about digital identity or engage in new ways with players in the space. Right now, I would say our main areas of focus in terms of clients are around some of the industries that really have already taken digital identity seriously. And those industries are regulated financial services or or money transmitters. So folks like banks, folks like digital money platforms, fintechs, 
and then also folks that are because of the way U.S. regulatory regimes have been put together, many types of sharing economy players are also regulated as money transmitters because of the nature of how they conduct their business and the fact that they may be essentially sending money between state lines digitally. That means they fall under the the money transmitter definition put together by FinCEN and therefore subject to USA Patriot Act, you know, know your customer requirements. So we work with those folks who kind of need to care about digital identity from a regulatory sense. And then the other folks we work with who are sharing economy platforms that might not fall under that designation, we work with because they have uh, what we call a trust and safety mandate. So, you know, thinking to a company like Uber, for example, you know, if they can't guarantee your safety when you get into a car, you're not going to you're not going to do business with them. You know, if you as a consumer don't have the trust that your driver is a vetted and safe individual, you're not going to get into the car of a stranger who you met on the internet because it's not going to be safe. So companies like that, that really have a trust and safety mandate is another industry group that we really have been working closely with. I'm not at liberty to to share the names of any of our clients in that space, but we've worked with some of the, the larger names in the sharing economy. And the type of work we do, we do traditional kind of project-based consulting work. So current state assessment, risk assessments, vendor assessments for someone like you want to bring on a new identity verification vendor, we can help you make that decision. And we also have what we call our advisory services platform, which is a bit more free form. And for a monthly fee, you get continual access to our team of analysts, the research reports, our research team writes, You get discounts on the events that we throw. So in addition to the no identity forum that takes place every year in Las Vegas, uh, we also throw um, monthly regional executive networking forums in cities around the globe. I was just out in San Francisco yesterday hosting a forum on the future of digital identity platforms. So that was really, really exciting. And we invite our advisory services clients to those events. And then as a member of the advisory services platform, you also have access to ad hoc consulting work. So if you do want to layer in a vendor assessment or fundamentally rethink some of your processes, uh, your onboarding flows, we can help you do all that as well. So you said regulated uh, industries such as financial related industries and the sharing economy. So those are some of your, your biggest sectors where you are working with. And for instance, in you mentioned in the financial bigger companies and also the fintechs that are relatively smaller, newer. Are the requirements between this one uh, too different in, in regarding digital identity? They are not. You know, if, if you're looking at the letter and text of the law, the fintechs are kind of bound by exactly the same regulatory requirements mm-hmm. as the big giants. But where I think they have an advantage is that in many cases, they are getting to rethink these challenges from the ground up and they can build their digital identity infrastructure from a clean slate uh, without any legacy systems and without any legacy customers. And that really frees you up to be a bit more creative with regard to how you think about digital identity, some of the systems and processes that you use and some of the ways in which you can interact with your customers. Right. Yes. It makes makes a lot of sense. Okay. Tell us now about The podcast, uh, State of Identity Podcast. So when did you start it? So that's a great question. I started that all the way back in 
2017, towards the end of 2017, we've been going strong for a few years now. We're on episode, I believe episode 134 Mm. just aired this past Thursday. And, you know, when we started Digital Identity, uh, it was one of the first things that I launched was the State of Identity podcast. You know, Travis, our CEO came to me and said, Cameron, everyone keeps asking us about a a podcast. We should have a podcast. And Mm. I think you're the guy to host it. Yeah. And so I said, that's great. You know, learned about podcasting, learned what, you know, all the digital and fun backend stuff that it entailed and, you know, got out there into the ecosystem with a, a microphone in my hand and a notepad <laughs> full of questions. And I think it's been one of the most exciting parts of my career, you know, just the the breadth of folks that I've had the pleasure of meeting, you know, everyone mm-hmm. from CEOs of companies to revolutionary thinkers like uh, Doc Searles. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Ruff, Phil Windley. I just had Dr. Ann Kavukian, you know, the creator of uh, Privacy by Design on the podcast. We did a live recording in Toronto at one of our No Identity forums with her. So it's been really, really fantastic getting to meet all of these, you know, I guess for lack of a better word, heroes of mine when it comes to digital identity. But more importantly, for my own, you know, career, it's been really, really insightful to just hear the stories of all of these folks working on digital identity from all these different sectors, the challenges they're facing and, you know, what their pain points are and where we still have work to do to kind of bridge these divides. You know, I think 2019 has been a banner year for digital identity, digital identity standards, digital identity technologies, but we still have a lot of work left to do because I think, you know, just from a financial inclusion perspective, There are still far too many people across the globe who lack meaningful digital identities that allow them to enter the world's uh, financial systems to transact. But beyond that, the amount of data breaches is still too high to your earlier point. Uh, The amount of Mm -hmm. identity data that's at risk, in my opinion, is still too high. And I think, you know, most importantly, the way that this is going to change people's lives is just knocking down these barriers to transact. You know, I, I really am a big believer that there's tremendous value to be unlocked in the economy by making it easier for folks to prove who they are in a meaningful way and really initiate a lot of transactions that I think they want to be initiating and in many cases are just giving up on because it's too hard and too complicated. And I think in many cases, folks just kind of throw up their hands and they say, "Uh, I was going to do this thing. I was going to sign up for a new account. I was going to buy this thing and they can't do it because of some existing challenges in the space, whether it's friction, uh, lack of ability to get their identity proofed. And rather than banging their head against the wall, in many cases, I think folks just throw their hands up and give up and uh, find another channel to complete that transaction that might be lesser. Mm -hmm. Yes, we definitely, I've been personally listening to your podcast since last year already and I really like it. You're an excellent host on that. So well, great, great achievement on on your side. And well, we are just starting. We are not even in the 10th episode of this. Let's talk about Digital Identity Podcast. So we are, have a lot to learn from you and keep following you. So for anybody who still hasn't listened to State of Identity Podcast, so yeah, it's your time to check it out. And yeah, thank you. And uh, just to jump on that uh, plug opportunity, you can check us out wherever you download your podcasts. Mm-hmm. We're on the iTunes store, Google Play store. We're on the web at oneworldidentity.com. That's one O-N-E. And also on Twitter at the number one worldidentity.com. It's, it's just at the number one worldidentity. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. Any story would like to share about your, your experience with a podcast? That's a great question. I'm trying to think <laughs> if anything really stands out in the back of my mind. You know, from a personal perspective, I think one of my favorite episodes, quite frankly, is my episode with Dr. Ann Kavukian. She was just so, so fantastic. And the interview is everything that I hoped it would be. You know, for those who aren't familiar, she is the creator of the concept of privacy by design. Mm-hmm. And she also, I guess, was most recently more well-known for her work with Sidewalk Labs. And when she felt that uh, they weren't necessarily holding up their end of the bargain with how they were going to protect mm-hmm. users' data on the platform that they were building, she kind of withdrew from the position and uh, kind of publicly took them to task for how they were going to be capturing folks' data who are using the smart city. Uh, and I think it's really, really admirable that she, um, you know, stood up for what she believed in and really put her foot down at, you know, personal cost, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I have to listen to that one. I haven't. <laughs> and I believe this podcast, State of Identity, is one of the uh, big achievements that One More Identity has had so far. Could you tell me other main achievements that, the organization has had? Sure. So, you know, I think the biggest achievement we've had is really the tremendous growth we've seen of the No Identity Conference. You know, we mm-hmm. were able to take it from Washington, D.C. to Las Vegas in just three years, which was a tremendous growth curve. And from, you know, the starting off the Ronald Reagan building year one to selling out the Ronald Reagan building year two to Vegas in year three has been great. And really the response we've gotten from folks across the industry about what has come out of the conference, whether it's in terms of product pilots, contributions to open standards platforms, the growth and uh, acceptance of self-sovereign identity platforms, all of this, you know, I don't want to take organizational or personal credit for these developments, but I do think the conversation that we have been driving with no identity has been quite meaningful and impactful with regard to changing the digital identity landscape for the better. So I hope we can continue to keep that up with uh, the 2020 show and beyond because, you know, I alluded to this earlier, but, you know, from a personal perspective, I really do believe that digital identity right now has ceased in many ways to be a technology problem. And it is, it's a people problem. It is getting the stakeholders who need to agree into a room to actually hash out how they're going to work together. Because, you know, between the smartphones that we have, modern cryptography, self-sovereign identity platforms, and the underlying, you know, open ledger technology that's, uh, that's powering those, I really do think that there is not a technological hurdle to building user-centric, privacy-preserving, and more importantly, low friction for the user uh, digital identity platforms that allow folks more sovereignty over their their personal data without sacrificing the ability to use that identity in a meaningful way and open the accounts, share their information when it needs to be shared. And you know, most importantly, I think from an institutional perspective, driving the costs down associated with identity so that businesses are not having to spend, you know, $50 a check to bring individuals on board in a regulatorily compliant way. So I think that, you know, more than anything else, I think is, is our crowning achievement, which is really driving this conversation forward, because uh, I do think that conversation 
and, you know, strategic partnerships and business development is how we're going to solve this challenge. It's not going to be some magic technological silver mm-hmm. bullet. Yeah, you're true. It's, it's more about uh, what we do with the, the users. Excellent. So we are almost at the end of this conversation. Could you tell us, could you give us a tip for anybody to protect our digital identity? Yes, and I'll try not to rant too long here, but I have a pretty pretty good spiel that I'm into because I feel like when, when I get at a cocktail party and people ask me what I do and I say digital identity, mm-hmm. the first thing that comes up typically is, you know, oh, all these crazy data breaches, oh. what should I do to protect myself? So I have a few a few things that I like to rattle off. You know, first and foremost, get a password manager. Mm-hmm. You know, you have too many passwords to remember. Mm-hmm. The password managers are integrated both with Android and iOS so well now. And it's so easy to make sure that you're using strong and robust passwords across all of your accounts that I would highly recommend that everybody use one, whether it's the system, you know, password manager that comes with Android or iOS. I'm a big fan of one password, but Dashlane, OnePass, LastPass, they're all fantastic products. So definitely recommend using one of those. If you don't want to use one of those, at the very least, make sure that your email address has a secure password and is not shared across any of your other accounts. Because as folks are probably familiar, if your email address password gets compromised and then your email gets compromised, Mm. everything ties back to that. So I don't need to know your bank password if I know your email password, because I'm just going to reset the password because I control your email and I will just change it there to something that I know. Now, the second piece of advice that I would give Mm -hmm. is your cell phone remains a very vulnerable fraud vector, depending on how you have your account set up with the telcos. Your listeners very well may be familiar with Twitter CEO, Jack Dorsey, Mm -hmm. having tweeted out a bunch of vile and offensive things because his Twitter account got taken over. How did they do it? A SIM swap attack. It is tremendously easy to socially engineer access to someone's cell phone account by convincing the customer service reps to do a SIM swap. Mm-hmm. The number one way you can protect against that is by calling your cell phone operator up right now and saying, please allow me to set a secondary passcode on my account, one that is not the last four of my social security number. I think mm-hmm. everyone at this point should basically assume that their social security number can be easily discoverable by bad actors whether for yeah. free or for a very nominal amount of money. So that should not be considered to be secure in, in really any way, shape, or form. So put a secondary passcode on your cell phone account because that's going to allow you to ensure that it's much, much harder to get that SIM card swapped out. And I would recommend, you know, this is maybe an advanced technique, but every time mm-hmm. I call my cell phone company up to do something like, you know, make sure a bill payment went through or order an upgrade, I test them. You know, I... <laughs> Attempt to socially engineer my way uh-huh. into my own account by saying, hey, will you let me in? You know, I don't know if I remember the passcode. Can you please just let me in with the last four of the social? You know, it's definitely me. You guys know me. And much to my surprise, the first two times I tried that after I thought I had had the secondary passcode set up, my cell phone carrier had actually not set that password up as they claimed. Wow. So after they tell you that they've set the secondary passcode up, I definitely think it doesn't hurt to to test them on that and try and see if you can get in without that passcode. 
that's maybe a, a you know a bit overkill for the average yeah. folks, but I think it's really the only way to make sure that you're not vulnerable to SIM swap because sadly, especially around banking, two-factor authentication via uh, an SMS pin code remains one of the main ways that folks' accounts are secured with multi-factor authentication, and it remains very, very vulnerable. So definitely close that loop off. And then third, I would say, you know, evaluate your overall cybersecurity posture, you know, make sure your Wi-Fi network has a passcode on it. Think twice about conducting banking or other sensitive transactions on a public Wi-Fi network, because that's not necessarily as secure as you think it is. But, you know, if you do nothing else, making sure you're not using shared passwords and taking advantage of password managers and making sure that your cell phone isn't vulnerable to a SIM swap, I think is really going to protect you from all but the most targeted of cybersecurity, you know, uh, malicious actors. Well, thanks a lot for, for the three, especially the, the second, I think, is, is very important uh, to protect your the account of your own mobile phone subscription. It's hard to believe that even um, Jack Dorsey, the creator of, of Twitter was hacked, so everything can happen. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, again, the degree to which it's easy to socially engineer information out of customer service representatives <laughs> can't be underestimated, especially mm. when it's somebody who who has time and resources. And, you know, folks don't realize they don't necessarily give up. You know, you, you call back five, ten times mm. until you get somebody who, you know, maybe doesn't care or they can be bribed. Or the other thing they do is, uh, you know, they go to, you know, random retail store workers who are making, in some cases, minimum wage or not that much money in a city like New York. And they offer them, you know, five, 10, 20 bucks an account to say, hey, help me uh, SIM swap these accounts and I'll pay you cash. And, you know, folks are vulnerable. You know, everybody, everybody has weaknesses and, you know, it's up to you as a consumer to protect yourself because sadly, the, the cell phone companies have not really put that much effort into securing your account for you. You got to take that responsibility on yourself, sadly. Well, <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Cameron, for sharing all this information about the, the tips and also the, the great work that you are doing there on One Word Identity. Please let us know how can we find you on the internet. Sure. So that's oneworldidentity.com, O-N-E, World Identity. We're on Twitter at at the number one world identity. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Dambrosi. That's at D-A-M-B-R-O-S-I. And the No Identity Conference, you can check us out at at noidentity.com. That's K-N-O-W identity.com. So keep your eyes peeled for uh, more great news around the No Identity Conference. Uh, We just announced Mm -hmm. a a fantastic wave one of speakers. Dr. Ann Kabukian is going to be there. Mm Many of the other, you know, leading names in digital identity from the major banks to the major sharing economy players to the major vendors in the space, they're all going to be there. So if you care enough about digital identity to be listening to this podcast, we would love to see you there. So I hope to see you in Vegas in April. Hmm. Hope so. Thanks a lot, Cameron. And all the best. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Let's talk about digital identity is produced by UBSecure. Be sure to subscribe and visit ubsecure.com slash podcast to join the conversation and access the show notes. You can also follow us on Twitter at UBSecure or find us on LinkedIn. Until next time.